as you're turning back to Matthew 23. As we study through the Old Testament, and one of the great layers that we see is that man, and through man's sin, wants to thwart the, the plans of God. And ironically, we get in these great debates about our will and God's sovereign will. And, uh, you know, we, we don't like the idea that we don't have complete 100% free will. We hate the idea that God would make us robots, right? And so, you know, we complain either way. Um, But one of the things that we see and that we've been studying is that it doesn't matter how sinful man is. It doesn't matter how sinful and wicked Cain was. It doesn't matter how wicked the world was before Noah. It doesn't matter how Abraham sins and and, and tries to create his own uh, generation through Hagar. It doesn't matter what Judah and Tamar do. It doesn't matter what Joseph's brothers wickedly do. Why? Because God is sovereignly in control. This is our Father's world. And it's important that we understand that, that our faith is locked in because this world can get pretty crazy pretty quick because the Lord does allow Cain and Abraham and Judah and Joseph's brothers and you and me to sin. And in our rebellion, in our rebellion, we, we thwart the ways of the Lord. But that's on us. And not only is that on us, and not only will there be consequences for disobedience, but even tenderly and graciously, our Father has provided a way of escape for us because this King loves us so much. Uh, and what a great God. As we enter into our, our Easter uh, season and um, looking at just kind of setting the tone for Easter Sunday and one of the things that I encourage you to do all the time is to, to read big chunks of scripture, to read the entire you know, book, the entire chapter, get a little context before and after. And so quite frankly, as I look and look at Easter and I, I know, I, I know the, the climax of Easter, right? I know where we're going. It's like, okay, so what do we need to know to really understand this event? What do we really need to know to understand why this had to happen? What do we need to know about God's plan for for Easter and and, 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 and the stages that needed to be set? What happened after Jesus dies and is resurrected? Well, what happened before Jesus dies? And so all these questions start to, to fill my mind as I'm as I look to to this this subject and this topic and and so quite frankly I just go to the word I don't have to create it I don't have to create a a topic I don't have to create like a really cool kind of series title outline I just will go to the word and say well what is God telling us what did God tell us literally not figuratively not maybe we have chapters and verses that we can turn to and look at and so as I 
started reading Matthew and just moving forward, one of the things that hit me and uh, the, the nuance again as we talk about Jesus and we not only talk about the Bible, we talk about how there's just always these layers that we see. One of the things that we see in the life of Christ is we see that, that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the King. We also see that Jesus is the Lamb. And we see and understand that, that Jesus is the Son of God. He is part of the triune Godhead. And so that's really what we want to look at in the next three weeks. We want to look at Jesus the King, Jesus the Lamb, the sacrificial Lamb. That, that dies to atone for our sin. And then Jesus resurrecting. How does a man resurrect? Well, because he's the God man. He is not just a man. And this proves that he was not just a man. But it all begins with an understanding of Jesus as the king. Now, what makes that so hard? What makes it so hard is, again, Jesus has different roles. And Jesus's first uh, stint here on earth, his primary role was not to be crowned King of Kings, Lord of Lords, was not to establish his authority and his rule here on heaven and earth. It was not to conquer all the enemies of Israel. So that becomes very confusing for us. It became very confusing for the Israelites because they so wanted that, right? Think about your angst right now in America. Be Israel. Be Israel where you have the promise of the almighty God that you will have your land by Abrahamic covenant and you're being occupied by Romans. You think we have it bad? They had it much, much worse. And so they so desired this conquering king to come and kick out the Romans. So much so that they were blinded to all the prophecy, all the promises of, of who this Messiah was to be, who this God King was to be. He was also a servant and a savior. And so when we see Jesus, Jesus comes as this ultimate servant King. And so we get locked into that and we get locked into seeing the life of Christ and we we understand okay here's here's you know Jesus's life and then we forget that he was king it's because that's the way we are we forget things I forget things so today we're going to see eight warnings eight warnings from the king it's the king who has authority to give warnings not a carpenter right it's the king we're going to see eight warnings. We're going to see it in kind of four different ways. The, the king's woeful warning, king's first four warnings, king's second four warnings, and then the king's woeful willingness. So again, let's understand who Jesus is. And as I was kind of surveying Matthew, you know, Jesus is born in a manger. The king is born in a manger. So right away, we're already, you know, and, and we see that in, in Christmas and we study that and and people come and worship the king. But he's born in a manger. And then the king goes away and he grows up in the carpenter's house. Not in the royal palace. He grows up in the carpenter's house. He's the son of a carpenter. He's a carpenter himself. He's a, a manly man. Jesus is, is not, you know, 
He's not an effeminate. He's not gentle and soft in that way. He's doing hard work. Jesus's ministry. He's walking around. They're providing for themselves. His ministry and his mission is is, is very, um, you know, grassroots. It's not a glamorous ministry. Jesus has followers. He has his 12 intimate disciples. He has a, a, a close group around him that travels with him. But he also, everywhere he goes, has foes. Again, this does not seem like this glamorous life of, of a king. And so we now see Jesus right before the cross, right before he's going to be uh, wrongly accused, right before he's going to be uh, persecuted verbally, persecuted physically, and then ultimately killed. So, <clears throat> what happens? What happens right before? Well, that brings us to chapter 23. And of course, that brings us first to chapter 22. Well, what does chapter 22 say real quick so that we get, again, some context here? Well, chapter 22, verse 41 says, Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Jesus asked great questions. And so Jesus asked them a question saying, Well, what do you think about the Christ? Now, this is an odd question. Okay? Because this is Jesus, and Jesus is, uh, you know, walking around and teaching. And, you know, he's a humble person. He's not the king. And he's brings up this question about the Christ. Who's the Christ? The Christ is the King, the coming Messiah, the ultimate hope of Israel. So to set the stage for this conversation, Jesus says, hey, what do you guys think about the King? About the Messiah? What throws us a little bit is, you know, we, we, we see it and we go, what do you think about Jesus? Who, because we always think, Jesus Christ, right? They're not there yet, right? Remember, they're not quite there yet. They don't understand that Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ. They're still in old covenant thinking. And so when he says, what do you think about the Christ? We know he's directly saying, what do you think about me? <laughs> but they don't know that yet. Whose son is he? Who is this Christ? Now, notice what they say. They say the son of David. You and me don't get really hung up on genealogies, right? I was thinking about this the, the other day. Uh, I, I got this picture of my great-grandfather. And, and it's just, it, it's, it's amazing how, it's like, well, I've never seen this picture. And, you know, my great-grandfather was from Mexico, and a whole lot darker than me. And you would never believe that that's my family. And I told my wife this before we got married, so she, she knew. She didn't believe me, but she knew. Me almost Antonio Miguel Jaime. But she did not want to listen. And, of course, my mom's German-Irish, so, you know. But, um... <clears throat> But see, I don't know past two generations. I, I don't know. I don't know them. The, the, the Bible does. 
When we go to Luke, when we go to, to, to Matthew and the genealogy going all the way back to, to Adam, genealogy going all the way back to David. Why would you go back to David? Well, if you were in the lineage of kingship, you'd probably know your family too, right? And so for the Pharisees, the connection between King David and whoever the future Messiah is, it doesn't matter who the Messiah's dad is or who the Messiah's grandfather is. What matters is in this lineage, in this line, his daddy is David, the king. Okay, so you guys understand that. So they don't know who, who the Messiah, who the Christ, you know, son, dad is. All they know is that this ultimately is the son of David. And that's what makes him the king, the Messiah, the Christ. And he said to them, then how is it that David in the spirit called him Lord saying, now Jesus is going to quote Psalm 110. Jesus is talking to religious guys, to Pharisees who know their scriptures. They know the word. He's asking them, who's the Christ? They tell him it's David. Okay, if it's David, then tell me this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So he, he throws in his curveball. He's like, Woo. tell me about this one. So David calls his son the Lord. His, his Lord. The son is the Lord. How does that work? Right? Son doesn't call daddy or daddy doesn't call son Lord. Uh, non-king doesn't call king, king doesn't call non-king king. What he's telling him is, look, before he's David's son, he's David's Lord. So, so this Messiah, this, this king is kind of reminds you of that Abraham question, right? Before Abraham was, I am. Before David was, I'm king. After David's king, I am also king because I am son of David. I'm in David's line too. So this just blows their mind. They're still just sitting there like, what? <laughs> but here's the thing that we need to understand and that we need to know and that we do know. At this moment here, in this humble ministry that Jesus has, Jesus is telling them, I'm the king. You're standing in front of the Christ, the Messiah. The king has something to say. The king is talking now. And, and that's something that we really need to get our arms wrapped around and when we look at chapter 23, especially since we're going to be going right into this ultimate picture of Jesus being the lamb. And so we're going to forget real quick that he's the king, but he's the king. And this is what the king has to say. And so that brings us into the context of our warning from the king before Easter. And by default, what's the warning to us, right? What's our application here? Because this already happened, okay? So how, how, how do we apply this to us.
Does it apply to us at all? Well, the king's woeful warning begins with this. Verse 20, uh, chapter 23, verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the multiple multitudes and said to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees had seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. And they tie up heavy loads and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them so as much as a finger. Well, let's stop there. So the king's woeful warm. The king warns them, listen, um, here are the scribes and the Pharisees. You guys can't even contemplate how important a scribe and a Pharisee is in this time. Picture it this way. None of you can read and write. You can't read and write. Only I know how to read and write. So, so this book has virtually no meaning to you. The, the, the scroll that would be pulled down, it, it's just scribble scratches. You have to rely on me reading it and teaching it to you. You have questions. You think you have questions before? <laughs> Imagine having questions then. And so you're, you're so dependent on the scribes and the Pharisees that these become very, very important people. Very important people. They, they say things that are so holy and spiritual, right? So beyond what you normally talk because they're in the Word. And Jesus says, look, um, as the king, only the king could do this, right? Not just some rando walking down the road. Who has the authority to tell you, hey, be careful of the religious leaders? The king does. And that's important for us to understand. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees, they have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. I mean, th this is like a place of esteem. When you talk about like, you know, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, right? I mean, like the, the legends. I mean, you're talking about Moses and Abraham. And these guys are, are sitting themselves in the seat of, of Moses. And he says, therefore, look, when, when they're teaching you the law, when they're reciting you the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are the Ten Commandments. I don't care who teaches you. Okay, the, the Levitical law is the Levitical law. I don't care who teaches you. When they're sitting in the seat of Moses and they're teaching you this, you, you need to listen. Do and observe. But, 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 don't be like them. Don't do, verse 3, according to their deeds. Well, that's sad. So listen to me. Just don't be anything like me. What? That's weird. Why? Well, because I say things and I tell you to do things, but I don't do them. Don't speed on Kent Kangley. It's dangerous. And there's a new stop sign there. Meanwhile, everybody in town knows I speed and I go right through the light. That seems odd, right? Hey, here's a curfew. Keep a curfew. I break curfew. Um, don't eat in restaurants. I eat in restaurants. Don't, you know, fly on jets without masks. I fly on jets. Sound familiar at all? <laughs> kind of odd. Um, we have rulers. 
We have leaders who say one thing and do another. Verse 4, they, they actually tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders and are unwilling to move even as much as a finger. You know what? If you want to follow God, if you want to be good Christian people, then you need to go out there and provide 10 cords of wood for, for the widows. Have fun. I got to go take a nap. Okay, that's what's happening. They, they put these burdens and they, they lay the guilt on. Don't you love Jesus? Don't you love Jesus? Then serve, then give, then do. But they don't do any of it. But, but they do like this part, verse 5. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men. They're the guy that, you know, when you're in PE, and maybe they don't do this anymore, and you're in PE and, you know, the PE coach says, all right, do, you know, your, your push-ups or your sit-ups. And when the coach is walking by, you know, they're doing them. And as soon as he walks by, they stop. And they're just like laying like this, right? And the guy turns around, they're, you know, they're doing it again, and then they stop. Right? That's these guys. They invented it. So they do things, and then when the coach looks, they're like pumping them out like crazy, right? Like, man, look at them go. They do it to be noticed by men. And, and, and the way they dress, and the way they look, and the, they lengthen their tassels, and you know what? They wear really nice suits and really nice ties, and they make a big deal out of it to be noticed by men. And they love the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the house at the synagogue. See, see, they enjoy that. They enjoy being called teacher or rabbi. They enjoy being called by the, the titles given, whether it's pastor or doctor or whatever it is. They, they, they like that. They, they enjoy that. This is how pride and arrogance seeps into them. And so the encouragement to us then is, listen, you need to understand. Don't, you don't esteem people. Don't, don't, don't call these leaders leaders and don't call them your, your father. There's, there's only one leader. There's only one Christ. The greatest among you, verse 11, they'll be your servant. They'll be like you. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. These are the kinds of leaders you want to look for and so the king gives a warning be careful of these types of leaders who lead one way but do another in the absence of a real king in israel the the religious men of israel they assumed that they were the authority they assumed that they deserved the honor and the respect. And they believed they were above the law. And now here's the real king setting them straight. And then the real king sets out the first four woes. Verse 13. But woe to you. And now he's going to crank it up a little bit, right? He was, he was saying it in a nice way. Yeah, that's right. The first 12 verses were the nice way. Okay? Now he's going to say it straight up. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, I don't know about you, but 
there's certain words that hurt, that cut, that are fighting words. And that seems, that's like one of those words. You don't say that to anybody. You don't say that to a friend. You don't say that in marriage. You don't say that in business. You, there's nowhere on this earth that you look at somebody and call them a hypocrite and they just go, eh. No. That, that is a, a, a big punch in the eye, right? Woe to you. Woe is this, this it's an exclamation. It, it's, a, it's a direct denouncement. You, you miserable, unhappy, sorry, sad person. Woe to you. That's what's being said here. Why? You're a hypocrite. Because you, now, you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men, for you do not enter yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Listen, my, my job, my role is, is, is to, with, with the biggest light that I have, the biggest clanging symbol that I have, the biggest mouthpiece I have, to proclaim the gospel of grace. That Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the price for our miserable, wretched sinner like me. And he can save you, each and every one of you. That, that's the call. And what he's saying here is when you speak, you're actually shutting the door. I, I can't imagine a worse statement being said uh, uh, about me, about a preacher, about a scribe, about a, a religious leader. He's saying, look, you're so bad that when people follow you, they're actually following you into the pit of hell. Wow. That's why you're so miserable, lowly person. This, this, is, this is harsh. Who can say this? The king. Only the king can say this. Verse 14. Woe to you. Well, I'm not done. We're just getting started. We're just getting started, right? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, by the way, the Bible will repeat itself sometimes. And when it does that, it's for emphasis. To remind us, to remind the person receiving it. Look, I'm not kidding. It's it, what's happening here is he explained what they were. They they tie up heavy loads. They they do deeds to be noticed by men. They sit down. They like to be called right. He, he explains what hypocrisy is, and then he's like hypocrite, hypocrite, hypocrite. I mean, it, this is a great exclamation of demountment. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, verse fourteen, hypocrites, because you devour. Not take advantage, not you devour. I think of the stinking little weasel that comes into your chicken coop, right? And just like kills and like doesn't even eat them. It's like just kills them, you know? And then you see one and it's like the whole chicken breast is like full, you know, inside out. And it's like, that's what I think of devouring. And it's like, that's what's being described as you scribes and Pharisees, you devour widows? Widows? Even while for a pretense you make long prayers before you shall receive greater, con therefore you shall receive greater con condemnation. So it has this idea that, look, you, you're, you're pretending like you're this great noble person, 
you go to these ev events, you know, it, it's, I, I would liken it to this. It's like, listen, again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay it on you thick. You know, the only way you're saved is if you go out and cut 10 cords of wood and, you know, we got to get this wood to the widows. we got to get it to the widows. And, you know, we're going to do, I'm going to come and do like this special prayer over the wood, you know, this awesome wood to the, to the, for the widows. And it's like, okay, now I, I need you guys to deliver it to this address. And it's like, that's my house. It's like, what? what? That's not the widows. It's like, that's the kind of stuff these guys are doing. They're devouring what should be for widows for themselves in the pretense of making prayers for the widows. We, we see charlatans and religious guys doing this all the time, right? On TV and stuff like that, asking for more money for, for this. Well, meanwhile, they drive... Mercedes and live in great houses and fly around in jets. That's devouring widows. Well, the third woe is woe to you, verse 15. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte, one conversion. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much of a son of hell as yourselves. Again, there's certain phrases. Have you ever heard anybody call somebody a son of hell? I mean, I've heard of other things that nobody likes. I've never heard of son of hell. I have a feeling because it's the kind of phrase that, how would you ever start that phrase, right? Like what person would ever, you know, that, that's a good one. That's that one. But what does it mean? What does it say to say to somebody, I mean, we have a different way of turning this. We'll say, go there, right? Um, but here we have this idea then again of the, of the Pharisee, of the preacher, who is kind of going all over the place, saying he's made one convert, when really all he's done is, is made him twice as bad as himself. We see this a lot in the form of, of religious legalism. We, we really see it in, in like these guys that like are so law driven. It's like, follow the rules, follow the rules, follow the rules, follow the rules, follow the rules. And it's like, well, there's no relationship with Christ. There's no understanding with Christ. They just, they just think, well, you know, I, I, I think of the Amish community. It's like, if I do these 10 things, I'm in. It's like, that has nothing to do with, with Jesus Christ. That has nothing to do with you know, what your, those clothes you're wearing, you're, you're tied up in something very, very religious that this guy taught you to be like, but I, I never asked you to do that. Um, where's the relationship? All, all that's happened here is you're now twice the son of hell as yourselves. You just live by traditions. Anybody can come up with a pseudo righteous tradition well the fourth one we see is woe to you blind guides now we see this little twist this little shift you know jesus lightens up a little bit here he doesn't call them hypocrites now he calls them blind guides which i love the concept i love the idea of you know we're gonna we're gonna go like on a hike right and and, and we're gonna go on this big hike and it's dangerous okay there's there's animals there's there's traps there's ledges, there's cliffs, and the guy leading you is blind. <laughs> no thank you, <laughs> right? <laughs> I, I mean, God's got a great sense of humor. They're blind 
guides. <laughs> so they're people who are supposed to be leading you. They don't know what they're doing. That's the blind leading the blind. Whoever swear, and then he comes up with this whole thing. Look, we, we, we got this thing, you know, like, well, if you're going to make a promise, or, okay, I, I promise I'm going I'm to pay you back the money. I swear on the temple, you know, and it's like, well, no, that's not good enough. You've got to swear on the gold of the temple. Now it counts, you know. It's like, neither one of them count. What are we talking about? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. So they go into this whole thing, which means that this was the thing. This was like one of their things that they would like swear on the temple. It's like you blind guides. What do you, what do you, you're leading people into believing that this is like what a, a real oath is. Whoever swears by the temple, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, then he's obligated. It's kind of like, you know, um, yeah, I'll come over and do that for you. <laughs> I cross my fingers. Does it count? Right? This is, that's what's happened. It's like these shenanigans. I didn't swear by the gold. And whoever, verse 18, swears by the altar, that is nothing. Well, yeah, well, when I, when I put my hand on the Bible, now it counts. So it's always weird to me, you know, this idea of when people are testifying in court and, and they put their hand on the Bible. It's like, if, if I'm the lawyer, the first question I have is, hey, do you believe in the Bible? No. You believe in God? No. What would you just swear by? Nothing? So you're going to say whatever you want. Yeah, that's kind of what's happening. Whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by it, by the offering upon it, he's obligated. You blind man, which is more important, the offering or the altar of the sacrifices? The offering. Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by both the altar and everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And he who swears from by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Stop, stop, stop. You're, 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 you're splitting hairs over nonsense. Well, the, the fifth woe we come to is, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Back to the hypocrite. hypocrites. For you tithe. You tithe. Now, these are considered expensive herbs. Okay, and again, we have to understand that that tithing is that idea of your 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 first fruit. If, I, if I'm in the, the the strawberry business, I, I bring my my first fruit of strawberries. This now we got you know we got herbs and spices and you know whatever it is that you're a farmer of, you're bringing that first fruit offering. And so we see this example here that the the Pharisees and the scribes they're tithing with mint and dill and cumin. So, so they're, they're actually bringing forth like rare and expensive. This is like a special tithe. That's, that's what they're showing. But yet you've neglected the weightier provision of the law. You bring this awesome tithe. You write big checks. You do a lot of serving, but you don't perform justice. You're not merciful and you're not faithful. These are the things that should be done. We'll, we'll, we'll look at our list. We'll look at 1 Corinthians 13. What is love? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not seek its own. Does not brag. Does not keep account of wrong suffer. Doesn't rejoice in evil. Right? Doesn't keep account of wrong suffer. Bears all things. Endures all things. Hopes. Okay, how does this work in, in living in the spirit versus the flesh? 
Hey, you know, love is patient, kind, good, gentle, faithful, self-control. Okay, that's what I want to see. I want to see your money. I want to see you living this. Let's start with your spouse and then your kids and then out in the world with one another. Okay? That's what I want. Don't want your money. I want your faithfulness. Verse 24, you blind guides who strain out a gnat, this little tiny gnat. You're like, you know, you're, you're making a big deal out of the gnat, right? The little seed of a strawberry. So you got a little seed in there, right? Meanwhile, you got, you got a camel in your mouth. <laughs> it's like, hey, you got a big hump over there, man. Um, it's that old log in the speck, right? It's like, that's the definition of a, of a hypocrite. They make big deals out of these little things. Meanwhile, what's going on with them is so much bigger. The sixth woe, verse 25, woe to you, scribe and Pharisees, hypocrites. This is, this is like, this is the haymaker. For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside are full of robbery and self-indulgence. So it's this idea of this disgustingness on the inside. You guys have probably seen, uh, you know, that guy's cup that, you know, sits there on the workbench. It's never been washed out. I think Frank has one. It's, it's on there. You don't even drink coffee, do you? And it's, got, it's never been washed. It's like got crud on the bottom. I mean, you can wash that thing 10 times. It's still going to be black and and, you know, and sometimes it's used to put out cigarettes. Sometimes that doesn't really matter at this point. And, and it's like, that's what's inside the cup. The outside looks amazing. The outside is pr it's pristine. It's, we'll put it up high so you can't see. And it looks so good. You would never, ever take a drink from it. And, and this is worse than just something gross. It's, Inside, you're full of robbery. The religious people, the religious people, the guys that are holding the keys to the kingdom are robbing and self-indulging. They're, they're, they're doing things that normal people couldn't and wouldn't do, couldn't afford to do it. That's that self-indulgence. You know, that, you know, again, flying around on jets and staying in hotels and going all over the world and eating meals like nobody else. It's the idea of kind of gluttony. It's like you're indulging in ways that nobody else can. It's, it's disgusting to God. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside. First clean the inside of the club. Clean your heart. Change your heart. Um, if you love me, then keep my commandments. If you love me, then show me your fruit. Okay? Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous men, but inwardly are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Well, the final woe is, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say... Well, but man, if I had been if I had been living with if I had been living with with you know David, 
it, well, you wouldn't know the story as David and Goliath. It'd be Tony and Goliath. Because I would have stepped up. I, I wouldn't I would have taken that. No way. Uh-uh. You know? If I had been around during Joseph, Joseph, it's like, man, I would have interpreted the dream. I wouldn't even need to interpret the dreams. I would know how to plan out the seven and the seven years. If I were there, if I were there, and all these evil, wicked kings that were worshiping false gods and idols, I wouldn't have let that happen. I would have said something. He says, well, you say that, for you build the tombs of the prophets and door monuments of the righteous, and, and if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would have been partners with them in, in the shedding of blood. Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Which, again, this is why we need to know our Bibles. Because when we look back and we go, now, wait a minute. Um, usually when we read these stories, like, nobody's on the right side. <laughs> um, there's nobody who's, like, ever does the right thing. Like, one guy kind of finds his way uh, because of the Lord. But really, what we really see is, like, a dog pile of badness. And so while they say, if we were there, we would have been like, it's like, yeah, you would have. You would have also been worshiping the false idols and following the wrong gods and rebelling against God. And in the time of the judges, you would have been right on the bandwagon of wickedness. Verse 32, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers. Now, again, okay, let's take a step back here. Deep breath. Okay, the king has just been laying the wood, right? And, all right, wait a minute. We, we know Jesus is going to die for these people. But before this happens, this statement happens. And, and don't let this escape your ears as though it's like, yeah, but Jesus is loving and kind and gracious and merciful and dies for my sin. Don't let this escape your mind. This statement, you serpents, you brood of vikers, you snakes in the grass. How do you think you're going to escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, I'm sending, who are you? I'm the king. I'm sending you the prophets and wise men and scribes. And some of them will kill and crucify some of them and scourge you in your synagogues and persecute from city to city that upon you may fall the guilt of the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Bechariah, whom you murder between the temple and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. The king speaks and says, listen. Not only would you not have been on the right side of history, you would have been on the wrong, wrong side back then, and you're going to about to be on the wrong side right now. You're going to be a part of the crucifixion, the scourging, the persecution. Wait, who was crucified, scourged, and persecuted? Well, first, it's Jesus. He's telling the scribes and the Pharisees, you say you would have been on the side of Messiah. You're going to kill me. And my followers after me, persecution from city to city, that's exactly what takes place. 
And unfortunately, how do you think you're going to escape hell? How do you think you're going to escape hell when you crucify, scourge, persecute the king? And see, that's something that we, we, we can't let go of. We can't let go of in the gospel. The true gospel must include the warning. The true gospel must include, there's consequences for disobedience. There's consequences for those who kill the king. And you will not escape the sentence of hell, which means by definition, there is a hell. Don't let anybody lie to you. There's a hell. Everybody does not go to heaven. But Jesus is loving. Jesus is kind. Jesus is gracious. Jesus died for all, for the world. Yes, yes, yes. But not everybody accepts. People can reject the king. People did reject the king. People will reject the king. Don't be one of those people. And, and, and let me say it this way. He's talking to better people than you and me. Scribes and Pharisees. He's talking to people who memorize passages of scripture like you could not believe. People who knew the law inside and out in ways you couldn't believe. You ask them a question, they have the answer. Chapter and verse. They invented the chapters and the verse. There were none before them. They invented them. These guys on the outside were holy and sacred and said the right things and gave money and gave time and did things for widows. They did all the stuff on the outside that looked good. They were hypocrites. The calling for us then is, hey, don't be like them. Don't, don't follow their way. That's what we started with, right? Don't follow the way they are. And it ends this way with this, the king's woeful willingness is, is the king's great desire then. This is then how after this just brutal rebuke, how the chapter ends. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets. I'm not going to hold back the truth. Who, who kills prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you, your children, like the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And, and you were unwilling for any of those, and many of us here have chickens or have seen chickens and have seen the mama hen. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. You, you can show, show when, a, when a hen goes broody, right? There'll be other chickens who come in and lay eggs and she'll just sit there until she hatches the eggs. So there are all kinds of different mama's eggs in there that she'll hatch. And once those, those chickies are hatched, they're her babies. And, and, and she'll adopt them all. And, and it's so funny to see because, you know, when there's like, you know, they're little tiny little chicks and, you know, she kind of does. I don't know how they do it. They kind of go like and they get like twice as big, you know, and she does that thing, you know, and then what's funny. And then they waddle around and they gather, 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 you know, one gets away, get over here, get back here. 
through or get back here, right? And the thing is, they get bigger. <laughs> and they can't really fit. But that doesn't matter to Mama, because Mama still is mother henning. And it's the most tender, gentle, intimate thing you can see. And this is what Jesus says. I so desire. This is the people he just said, you brood of vipers, hypocrites, blind guides. But I love you. I love you. And you know what he's getting ready to do? Now, this is what's awesome. Is this harsh? It, it, it is it, as, as, as clear as I could look at Aaron eyeball to eyeball and say, you hypocrite, cut it out. This is what you've done. And I start listing his sin, all his sin. And I say, I just want you to, to, to come close to me. Just trust me. That's what I leave him with. That's a big matzo ball. And I walk out the back door and you know what I do? I die for him. I die. I pay the price for him. Am I mad at him? No, I'm not mad at him. I love him. That's love. Love in, in, includes truth. And, and, if, and if you give a gospel that's half true, just the hippie Jesus love side, you got the wrong gospel. If I just tell Aaron, hey, Aaron, it's all cool, man. Do whatever you want to do. Treat your wife, how, you know, treat her however you want to treat her. She'll forgive you. She's a Christian. See how, how well that goes. That might last you. <laughs> now you got enough problems, man. Okay. Figure out somebody else. <laughs> how do we know that doesn't work? But see, look, this is love. This is love. This is love. This is what love looks like. It's honest. It's raw. How do you think you're going to escape hell? You're not, except I'm going to die for you. But what I need you to do is I need you to come. Or if you're unwilling, if you're unwilling and you have an opportunity to be unwilling, you want free will? You got it. You can reject the crown of Christ. Don't do it. Everything has been laid out for you. From the king warning you with a stern warning and a gentle, loving retort. And then with the proof of life. Because now we're going to get to see what he does after this. But it's so interesting what he did before. See, we, we, we love halftime speeches. We love... You know, watching sports, we love the big turnarounds. Like, well, what? You know, these teams go into, the, into halftime and they're losing and look terrible. And they go in the locker room, they come out, it's like a different team. It's like, what happened? What did that guy say? He read Matthew 23. <laughs> well, maybe not for football, but. It's a warning from the king before the greatest event in the history of mankind. Before the greatest event in the history of mankind our salvation before that the king the mother hen reminds us it's time to wake up right it's time to wake up let's pray lord